Hebrews chapter 10, and we are in the throes of a wonderful passage, the last part of Hebrews chapter 10. I'm excited to work our way through this with you. Um, let me uh, bring to you just a few words of introduction before we dive into uh, a verse, and I really mean a verse. We, we have so much to consider, but because there's so much here, we have to kind of take our time, and that's all right, because I'm going to be here next week, and I I'm assuming you will be as well. Uh, we live in a postmodern time. Uh, there's no denying that. It began in the decade of the 60s, replacing modernism. One glaring characteristic of postmodernism, of course, is a denial of all absolutes in the area of morality and spirituality. There are very few standards or ideals that are universally held today in those areas, if any at all. And that's a big if. Now, I'm not including in, in that uh, absolute equations and formulas in the field of science. The law of gravity still holds true no matter where you live and no matter what your worldview is. And trying to deny that one could possibly get you killed. Just step off the roof of your house and you'll see very quickly what I mean. The same is true in, in many other disciplines, though, as well, right? Music, for example, has laws. Uh, there is music theory. There is such a thing as a perfect fifth, a tonic note, the scales, all undeniable, of course. There's also building codes that towns um, enforce, albeit they're subject to change, but they're always there. And, of course, laws of the land, which are also subject to change and often do, but they, too, are always there in some form or fashion. There are absolutes and standards in physics, in aerodynamics, which, which are always helpful if you happen to be a company that builds commercial airplanes or a traveler flying in one. There are these standards and ideals in many, many areas of life, that are undeniable, and we're thankful for them, especially the ones that keep us alive, like those in the field of medicine. But again, when it comes to how people define themselves, their thinking and their actions, even their very existence on this earth, that is completely a different matter altogether. Frankly, it's strictly their business and no one else's. Life is a very private matter, and People will defend that tenaciously and define it as they want. No, no absolutes to speak of here. So postmodernism began in the decade of the 60s, bringing a decline of moral and spiritual absolutes. And now 60 years later, our country has reached a level of absurdity in postmodern thought going to really logical extremes. Not only do people care to, de to define what is morally right and wrong for themselves in defiance of, of the way it has been understood for millennia, <clears throat> but their effort to redefine themselves, to recreate themselves, they defy even science and biology. We've made this point a few times before. Marriage is unrecognizable from what it used to be. Now there are more than two genders, believe it or not. Violence and rioting are suddenly viewed as free expression, depending on, depending on who commits it. Theft, 
for certain people is nothing but reparations, and race is now inherent in all white people. I bring this all too familiar and very disturbing context up for two reasons. One is to reinforce the fact that Christians certainly behave differently. We believe that there are, and there always have been, and there always will be, moral and spiritual absolutes, no question. They're found in no other place than in Scripture, God's Word, and we live by them. We, we root our belief in them and develop our epistemology from them. This is what makes us so very different from the culture and what should make us stand out more and more as the culture descends more and more in moral decay. The other reason is that God calls us to be a powerful and demonstrable witness to these very divine attributes in an anti-Christian environment, in a post-Christian world. We have our work cut out for us, I can assure you. We have the difficult task of convincing non-Christians who are caught up in this postmodern context that they've got it all wrong, that God has defined life for us absolutely. And, and there is only one way a person can enjoy them as their own, and that is to trust Christ to trust Christ alone. More specifically, there are only two ways, two options when it comes to living your life. Only two. Here they are. One is that a person either embraces the gospel, becomes a genuine believer in Christ, and lives life with God at the center, anticipating a wonderful and eternal life together with him in heaven someday. Or, the second denies the gospel, remains estranged to Christ, lives life without God, with self as the center, anticipating a dreadful eternal condemnation in a place that the Bible calls the lake of fire and the second death. That is the honest-to-God truth. These are the only two options there are. And as offensive as that presentation has always been to believers all throughout time, it is even more so to believers living in a postmodern world. What do you mean only two options to life? There are many options to living life, and if I don't like one that I have, I'll simply create a new option. Now, if that sounds ridiculous to you, that's because it is. As ridiculous as Adam and Eve becoming their own gods. Sound familiar? But this is how people in 2021 define life. If there is something about it that bothers them or makes them uneasy or pressures them, or constrains them in some way, they simply redefine it away. See how easy that is? Very convenient. It's really a religion when you think about it. The founder of the Christian science religion, Mary Baker Eddy, argued in her book, Science and Health, way back in 1875, that sickness is an illusion. Hmm. The only illusion was that way of thinking, of course, and on the evening, uh, eve evening of December 3rd, 1910, Eddie died at her home from pneumonia. One of the cruel ironies of paganism, I suppose. Many postmodernists today, as was true 
of Eddie then live in a purely a pure fantasy world and while it's obvious or as obvious to you and to me as obvious as the big burly man standing 6 foot 5 with the deepest voice you've ever heard is a man no matter if he wears dresses or wants to be called Ethel somehow it's not obvious to post modernists it just goes to show that people will do anything to refrain, uh, retain rather their fierce independence from a holy God. The sad fact about all of this is that a person can rationalize away the creator and his absolute truth and redefine existence for himself all he wants. But it will not change the fact that he is still destined to die just as Mary Baker Eddy did and after that face judgment. So says the writer of Hebrews, chapter 9, verse 27. Now, I said a moment ago that Christians don't buy into this fantasy world where, God of the, where the God of the Bible doesn't exist and people recreate themselves and their own lives. Postmodern philosophy and theology just don't mix. Please remember that. But don't be fooled into thinking that Christians in America are immune to the fine art of redefining and recasting reality according to one's own desires. They're not. Oh, no. It finds a way in like water finds the smallest cracks to seep through and, 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 and does its damage. This pagan thinking has negatively impacted the church, and I would say that it has prevented many of many of them from seeing only these two options, these two realities, these two ways of life that are before all people, God's way of the gospel and one's tailor-made individual way that is the way of death. This was the case with many in the first century congregation that we're looking at here in the book of Hebrews that received this letter. And we want to believe that they may have limped along the straight and narrow. Limping is still progress, just a, a rather pathetic Christian display of progress and confidence, but it's progress nonetheless. Were some turning back? Well, there's some indication that some were at least toying with the idea. The writer wanted them to know that turning back means spiritual death and all the more severe for someone who knows better. All unbelievers go this way, beloved, even if they never hear, hear the gospel. But those who have heard and witness firsthand the goodness of God among his people and, and in a, are in a worse condition, we call them apostates. More on that in just a bit. How many were actually apostate, and how many apostatized in this first century church, we'll never know. But even those who profess Christ yet wavered between these two opposite options. And they needed to be warned that, that taking a way that is not biblically sanctioned by God is the way of spiritual death and the way of the apostate. So don't go there, the writer says. Now maybe you can see the value of such warnings to the church in any age. I would, I would argue that they are particularly appropriate for America in 2021, where we have seen Christian personalities engage in dangerous compromise, and still others of them have denounced the faith altogether. Scary. 
And there was a time, of course, when we would never think that such persons would have done so. Which brings us to the point where we have to admit, don't we, that we really don't know about any of us, do we? Sounds kind of ominous. We take a person's word for it, we witness his or her fruit. That's the best we can do. We can surely recognize when somebody does apostatize, though, but we cannot know if there is a person in the church who is one waiting to happen, can we? We just don't know what goes on in the heart of an individual. We cannot. But when it does, the apostate will in some way devalue the gospel. Some denounce it outright and want nothing to do with Christianity ever again. They walk in another direction proudly. Others denounce it by redefining Christianity, creating really their own brand a false brand of Christianity, of course. So the writer here makes a valiant attempt to keep his audience in God's narrow way and to dissuade any of them from embarking on the way of death and the apostate, which really incorporates all other ways that make up the broad road to destruction. So let's see how he does this. The passage that we're going to be uh, looking at thoroughly over time takes us right straight to the end of the passage, that would be verse 39. We're starting in verse 26. <clears throat> that passage divides up into three sections. We're going to look at uh, two today, and we won't actually finish. So the first section really begins before it. But because verse 26 begins with for, which in this case, for means you see, or it's an explanation on the basis of what has been said, then I would argue that the the first section really is the admonition to believers to faith, hope, and love. That That is the first section. There's an admonition to believers to faith, hope, and love. And we get that really from the context. In order to appreciate the full impact of this section, we have to look at it in its context. Remember, context is everything. People are wrenching Bible verses and passages out of context all the time to make them say pretty much whatever they want. And you can do that when you wrench them from their context. Usually they do it to justify some sinful behavior or rationalize it away or any God-given responsibilities away. So the context is very upbeat here. We just finished examining three timely admonitions to the church in verses 19 to 25. And the writer will provide in verses 31 right to the end, verse 39, incentives for keeping our faith and being productive. I love how he takes them at their confession and includes himself in the admonition. Let us do this. Let us do that. Let us us do this. And so on. What comes in the middle of these two very upbeat sections is a brief word on apostasy a topic which we haven't seen since chapter 6. He sandwiches it between these two very upbeat passages, that is the one on admonitions that we looked at last time, and the one on incentives that we will look at later, for an effect, to bring about an effect. He wants to highlight by the contrast, this, this very contrast, 
this vibrant Christian living that he's so upbeat about. No matter, no matter in what context, even adversity, the writer beckons us to stay the course with very encouraging incentives, as we'll see next time. So the description of apostasy in the midst of these two encouraging passages makes them sweeter to the ear. It's just like the good news and the bad news of the gospel. We have to paint the bad news in order to understand the good news. And actually, it's the worst possible news you can hear that makes the best possible news the best. And that's what we've got going on here. It enhances his encouraging tone, emphasizes it all the more. Now, these two upbeat sections point out what any logical, sane follower of Christ should want. At the same time, he uses the contrast also to inject a bit of sober thinking into his listeners about the dangers of falling away, which is definitely something that any logical, sane follower of Christ should want to avoid. He arranges this middle section as if to say this, oh, you don't want any of this. The use of the contrast is really a popular literary device in the among New Testament writers, they use it to emphasize and clarify important truth. So the writer has admonished them about living out faith and hope and love, and he'll go on to give them incentives, incentives to stay the course in this. His expectation is that they'll heed it. They must, you see, because as he now shows us in the second section, verses 26 to 30, the only other option is not good at all. That brings us to the second section then. Warn believers of the alternative. That's what he does here. Warn them of the alternative. And the alternative is simply this, the way of death. The way of the apostate. I want to look just at verse 26 because that's all we have time for. Just to refresh your memory, the technical definition of an apostate is one who departs from orthodoxy. That is, the, the context of Christianity, uh, or the context, in the context of Christianity, I should say, a person embraces God's word. What Jude referred to as the faith once for all delivered to the saints. He embraces it as his own. He believes it to be God's absolute word on morality and spirituality, but then at some point he departs from it no longer holding to it as God has meant for it to be understood. A person believes something else to be true now, which is really amounts to a denial of apostolic truth and the faith. You realize, don't you, that apostasy happens in the church, right? It doesn't happen apart from it or outside of it. Apostasy happens in Christianity. A person has to have been in and among the body enjoying the blessings that God shows to the body, engaging even in aspects of, of the church's ministry, witnessing the power of the Holy Spirit, working through answered prayer, and healing the sick, and conversions, witnessing Christian baptism, and, and, uh, and weddings and funerals, Christian parenting, and so on. Now, in our past outline of apostasy, back in chapter 6, we were careful to mention that Really, apostasy comes in, in only two types. 
There are two kinds of apostasy. One kind is the outright departure from orthodoxy that is revealed by a complete break from the faith altogether. I want nothing whatsoever to do with this anymore. The apostate proclaims he's no longer a follower of Jesus, but rather a follower of something else. And off he goes. He may claim to be an atheist or a member of a religious group, join the Freemasons, uh, he might be a naturalist whose religion is science, or perhaps he's nothing at all, which is still a form of religion. We call it humanism. So that kind of apostasy is obvious. Everyone can see it. There's no question, no confusion. That's happened throughout church history, and it will continue to happen until the Lord returns. But that is not the most popular kind of apostasy. There's another kind that, that exists, and I would argue that this is the most popular way that apostates manifest themselves in the church. It is also a departure from orthodoxy, yes, but not by proudly denouncing God's truth and claiming to have nothing to do with Christianity, as in the first instance. Rather, the departure is, is by cleverly redefining apostolic truth and Christianity to accommodate one's lifestyle. Now, whatever that is, it's no longer Christianity. You can be sure of that. Once followers of Christ, followers who were outwardly followers, followers only in the sense of becoming learners of the faith, but not true believers of it, they now substitute that teaching for something unsound while at the same time keeping the title. They're Christians in name only. They manipulate the text to make it conform to a way of life that they much prefer so they can live, in it, live it the way they want while still claiming that they love God and that he blesses them and hears their prayers. Well, we saw this happening, didn't we, most of us here, when we, when we trudged through the book of Judges. We saw Israel during that period. They mixed pagan belief with the practice of Yahwism. And we see it in the New Testament, too. Paul specifically says that in the last days, people will not put up with sound doctrine. Those, those are, of course, churchgoers. But they will seek to surround themselves, Paul says, with their own teachers who will give them what they want to hear. Context is unmistakably in the church. His last word to the elders in Ephesus, Paul's last word, was a warning that savage wolves would rise up among them and not spare the flock. Then Peter would witness the start of it in the Asian churches. Jude would see it happening in full swing. And by the time you get to Revelation, Ephesus is in trouble. So are several other churches that God threatens to remove from the scene if they don't repent. 1,500 years later, Martin Luther recognized the Roman Catholic Church to be apostate, and when he couldn't reform it, he broke away from it, and he became one of the founders of Protestantism. And today, we have many brands of Christianity in America, not the least, not the, the, not the least striking are the homosexual church, the feminist church, and now the woke church. Brands. We take the book, we keep the name, we change the, the meaning, and we live it happily ever after. In this second brand of apostasy that the writer sees as a possible outcome for some in this first century church, 
he addresses it directly for a second time in this letter, and it is by far the most sobering of the two passages. It will be his last word on the matter. So he begins then with an explanation of the only other option to pressing on in faith, hope, and love. And it's this, verse 26. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now let me just say, the key to understanding what the writer is getting at here is to grasp the Old Testament context out of which this comes. There is an Old Testament code language for apostasy here that you might not be familiar with. The Levitical Code and the Torah, that is the, the whole entire Old Testament, uh, which captures the Old Covenant, clearly delineated the difference between two kinds of sins. This is, this is important to grasp. Now, sin is sin, okay, and God hates it all. But apostates do commit a certain sin that genuine believers do not. I'll let you think on that a little bit. It's true. Their sin is unique to apostasy. In other words, it's the sin that defines apostasy. So the Old Testament termed these two kinds of sin unintentional and intentional. All right? Now, unintentional sins are sins of ignorance, they are of a wide variety, too. We know them well. Oh, we say, I, I, I didn't know that, 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 that what I was doing was actually out of the will of God. Yikes! No wonder I'm experiencing such bad consequences. I, I had better turn from that and, and go the right direction now that I know. Lord, please forgive me. That would be the right response, of course, to discovering an unintentional sin. It's not always apparent to some. And we have to help them see it. A Christian woman kicks her Christian husband out of the house because he's not being considerate of her of late. I've seen this scenario over and over and over again in our counseling ministry. She thinks that she might wake him up so that he'll appreciate what he's really got. It seems to her to be the right thing. You see, she spoke to some who have found it to work. And, and besides, the, the handful of Christian women at the church who have decided to take her under their wing and be her support group have told her in no uncertain terms, kick the bum out. He doesn't deserve you. She'll tell you that these are godly women. Uh-huh. What this poor misguided woman and her beloved sisters in the church, for that matter, don't realize is that she has not rebuked or confronted her husband the way the Bible has called her to. She neglect to take the proper steps to bring about reconciliation if there's been an offense. It would also appear that she doesn't grasp biblical submission, which does not go out the window just because her husband is inconsiderate of her needs. No wonder she's having panic attacks, sleepless nights, and depression. Now he, of course, well, he's also to blame. He's also sinned in ignorance, listening to her. He clearly has not put for Christ first. In leaving, he risks jeopardizing other of his God-given responsibilities. God calls him to be the head of the home. Can he head it when he's not around? God calls him to raise his children in the training and admonition of Christ. Can he do that when he's absent? 
More than this, everything he does in relationship to his wife should always be for the promotion of godliness. Leaving just because she asks him to doesn't facilitate resolution. It only deepens the rift. So many Christians in this situation have bought the worldly lie that sometimes they must separate in order to fix their marriage. But how can you solve problems together apart? That doesn't make sense, does it? That's because it's nonsensical. Christians who sin out of ignorance usually mean well, like we talked about in our Sunday school class this morning, but sin is sin. They still need to repent of it, change, and do the godly thing. And and they will, with your help. The other kind of sin that the Torah spells out is the intentional sin or deliberate sin, which is the kind that only apostates commit. Now wait just a second. You're thinking there are times when Christians sin willfully. Not all sin that they sin is out of ignorance or neglect. Well, yes, I would agree. I've I've heard it many times before in counseling situations. Someone says, I I knew what I was about to do was sin. Uh, It was a weak moment, and I feel rotten. And this leads us to ask another question then. If I, a Christian, sin intentionally, does that mean I am an apostate? Well, the answer is no. You see, genuine believers do sin willfully at times. So how do we reconcile with this with what the writer of Hebrews says? Well, as I said before, this language is reminiscent of, of Old Testament code language for apostasy. So let's deal with the Old Testament context first. In Numbers 15, there's a brief passage where it describes these two different kinds of sin. Listen as I read Numbers 15, verses 28 to 31, if you're following along. It says, And the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who goes astray by an unintentional sin, making atonement for him so that he may be forgiven. You shall... Have one law for the native among the sons of Israel and for the stranger who resides among them for one who does anything wrong unintentionally. All right, so far so good. But the person who does wrong defiantly, whether he is a native or a stranger, that one is blaspheming the Lord and and that person shall be cut off from among his people since he has despised, excuse me, the word of the Lord, and has broken his commandment, that person shall be completely cut off. His guilt will be on him. Now, this was no doubt a sobering warning to the nation. The intentional sin of the Israelite or the resident alien was tantamount to blaspheming the Lord. That's what it says. And that wasn't just by leaving the nation and taking up residence and pagan nations, where they adopted pagan gods, as we saw Israel doing when we studied the book of Judges. This is a warning to Israelites under the theocracy. And if that's the case, then Israel, Israelites here were incorporating idolatrous ways into Yahwism in the camp. And we also saw evidence of this in Judges, and more of this kind than the other. These Israelites were not genuine believers then. They may have been sincere about this kind of 
unholy integration, thinking nothing is wrong with it. Maybe they thought that they were enhancing Yahwism. You'll notice that the passage does not say that this person was in the act of blaspheming, but that he is a blasphemer. That is to say, he wasn't standing in the open square deliberately denouncing God, but he was following a path of sinners when he knew better not to and engaged in practices that were, by God's standards, blasphemous and an absolute affront to him, sacrilege. Now, for that kind of sin, a deliberate departure from God's standard to embrace error, while still calling it Yahwism, would send you away from the camp. You'd be cut off. The Levitical Code made no provision in its sacrificial system for this sin of apostasy. There was none. If you were found to be an apostate, you were cut off from the nation or maybe even executed. So that's the context behind Hebrews 10. And the writer chooses his words to bear this out very carefully. Let me show you what I mean. The willful sinning that he mentions here, he qualifies with two phrases in our English translation. So this is how you know that he's talking about apostasy. <clears throat> The first is after receiving the knowledge of the truth. Now that tells us that the willful sinner sins in a context where he knows better because he has access to sound doctrine. So you may still be a bit skeptical since Christians do sin at times even though they know better. Yes, and here is where the second qualification comes in. It precedes willful sinning and it is the little phrase, go on. Go on. In Greek, it's actually part of the verb to sin. The verb is in the present active tense, which in this context suggests or defines ongoing action. Action that continues, repetitive action. This is not a reference then to some isolated incident or even an occasional instance or occasional instances of when I sin knowing full well that I'm acting contrary to sound doctrine. No, rather it is a reference to a lifestyle where one willfully disobeys the sound words of Scripture on an ongoing basis. It defines him. This is the practice of the apostate. And none here is guilty of that sin, at least not that I know of. I'm taking your word for it. We need to put this in context of the first century church in the book of Hebrews then. We know that there were, they were drifting from various reasons. They were receiving persecution from family, from, from leaders, uh, religious leaders in the empire for leaving Judaism. And as the persecution heated up, they started compromising. They adopted tenets of Judaism into their Christian worldview and they created an unholy hybrid now, maybe this was their way of trying to have both at the same time, you know, one foot in the Old Covenant and one foot in the New Covenant, so to speak. We said a while back that there is a, a good evidence to suggest that they were actually gravitating toward the, the beliefs of a sect in Judaism, the Essene community of Qumran, for the once zealous Jew who converted to Christianity here, but really now is only at best an immature believer he would have found these beliefs very attractive and perhaps convenient for compromise. 
The beliefs are blasphemous, though, and we addressed them earlier on in our study of the epistle. Um, the expectation, for example, that the Lord would someday restore the Levitical system in a pure form under a priestly Messiah. Do you remember that? One of three Messiahs that will come at the end of this world. Well, that's an absolute affront to Christ and his perfect priesthood secured by his once-for-all sacrifice. You can see how it's blasphemous. The Essene community also emphasized, according to the Qumran documents that we have, the knowledge of the truth. There's this phrase that recurs, knowledge of the truth, knowledge of the truth. And that would be, of course, completely at odds with the apostolic truth, and embracing it would be an abandonment of apostolic truth. Again, it's a blasphemous path. That Moses was superior to Christ as a mediator, that Aaron was superior to Christ as a high priest, that angels were superior to Christ and will come at the end of time and rule, that the old covenant was superior to the new. To hold these views, one would have to deny the efficacy of Christ's active work in life and passive work on the cross. As a result, they are blasphemous and an affront to God. So the writer, he shows his audience as they, as they indicate a drift away from theological center. He shows them this. It doesn't mean that they were apostates. At most, without more data, we can say that they were heading in the direction of the apostate, which Peter did himself, as we talked about earlier this morning. But, of course, he himself wasn't, which is why this warning is so needed for the church. Jesus warned, uh, warned Peter, and as one of you commented earlier this morning, he warned him in no uncertain terms, calling him Satan in a metaphorical way. The writer, like the godly sage of Proverbs 2, desires to rescue them from the way of evil from a person who speaks perverse things, from those who leave the paths of righteousness, or, or un, uh, upright, uprightness, rather, to walk in the ways of darkness. That's what he does. Well, this is verse 26. Now, we have to talk in depth about judgment that, uh, that this way invites and, and, and occurs. Um, but we have no time to talk about that now. We'll have to wait till next time. So what I would like to do is bring this section to a close with, uh, with some concluding remarks. I'm going to give you just four. In light of what we've said about two ways, two realities, two options of living life, the right way, God's way, the way of eternal life, which comes by, by repenting of our sin and trusting the work of Christ alone, having God's pardon and assurance that we now belong to him because of what Christ has done. That is the right way and the only way to God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And then there is the wrong way. It is the way of the Antichrist, the way of eternal damnation, which is also the way of apostate. In light of all that, let's consider four applications. Number one, this warning is appropriate to sound off to the church because we don't know what's taking place in the heart of another individual. I would argue that the warnings in Hebrews are applicable and appropriate 
to all churches because we don't know what's taking place in the heart of another individual. There are eventually bound to be counterfeit Christians in the local church. The New Testament is clear that there will be tares among the wheat, right? And tares really grow very hardy. But don't, we don't know who they might be until, of course, they are revealed, if they are this side of heaven. After being surprised by a handful of famous Christian personalities turning away from the faith of late, we can never be too sure, can we? We don't know who is an apostate waiting to happen among us. This makes the warning of the church all the more appropriate. It rightly calls pretenders, and it also calls those who are upfront about not being Christians, but enjoying being with the body, both of whom gain eventually a, a good education in spiritual things and experience body life, to reconsider abandoning it and going the way of the apostate. As we just said, it is more than appropriate to say, make sure that there is not an unbelieving heart among us. Number two, this warning is appropriate to sound off in the church because genuine Christians can be misled for whatever reason to pursue the way of the apostate. And by that, I don't mean that they become one, but that they pursue wrong ends that are associated with the, prob, with the, with the uh, apostate, just as Peter did, remember, in our Sunday school lesson this morning. What do I mean by this? Well, in this case, where there's no chance of genuine believers apostatizing, a warning like this becomes really an encouragement to them to remain all the more faithful to the true word of God. Isn't that interesting? A warning like this will become an encouragement to those who are true believers. To this, you ought to say amen. At the very least, it would engender zeal for God's way. It should, receive, it, it, it should be received in, in, in a hearty way, with a hearty amen from them. And at the very most, well, it would curtail any action or thinking that falls in line with the way of the apostate. It says to Christians who might toy or flirt with error, don't even go in that direction. That is the way of the apostate. Have nothing to do with it. There's nothing for you there. Just trouble. In this way, warnings in Hebrews become very much like road signs to the genuine believer on the narrow road seeking the kingdom. They say things like, beware over there. Don't take that detour, danger, this other road, it ends. Keep out of this area, it's toxic. Now, if you knew that you stood a good chance of falling off the edge of a cliff, if you got too close to it, would you even bother going there? In the same way, the warning says to us, why would you think like this? That's the way the world thinks. Don't carry on in that fashion. That's how the apostate carries on. Put that direction of thought and reasoning out of your mind. That's how the world reasons. Can you imagine yourself telling other Christians that? I can. I can imagine telling myself that. And I do. Often. Number three, Christians who struggle in the faith whether 
over life-dominating sins or even doubt, doubting their salvation, are not in view here. I want to make that very clear. They're not in view here. If a believer is worried about whether he or she is not a believer, chances are he or she is because there wouldn't be this concern over whether or not there is genuine salvation. Um, and someone who struggles with a, a besetting sin, a life-dominating sin, well, he shows he has life. If you weren't struggling over something like that, then we would have cause to be concerned. We need to distinguish genuine Christians who fail or become faithless at times from counterfeit Christians who fall away. Our scripture reading for this morning, 2 Timothy 2, verses 8 to 13, a passage that speaks of enduring all things, says at the very end, in verses 12 and 13, Paul quotes a trustworthy statement. He says this, If we deny Jesus, he will also deny us. Next verse, verse 13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Paul gives two very different situations here. Do you see that? Those who deny Jesus in whatever form, outright denouncing him or embracing a different Jesus, Jesus will deny you. He even promised that himself in the Gospels. If you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Heavenly Father. He himself even said this in the Sermon on the Mount, giving us a sober instance of those who came before him at the end of time, boasting that they preached in his name and ministered in his name and cast out demons in his name, to which he said, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. They were obviously of the second brand of apostasy that we've developed here. This would be Judas. Paul's second situation is very different even though it might not look so obvious from our point of view. And that is the genuine Christian who is faithless at times. Are you faithless at times? Call them carnal, call them backslidden, whatever you want, but Paul is talking about genuinely saved Christians who have lapses in their faith, who in the process of taking two steps backward after taking three forward, they sin, and willfully at times, but they face no judicial judgment. They belong to Christ. They know God is Father. He will not lose any of them. He loves them. And they will be with him someday in glory. In these instances, Jesus is faithful to forgive and to bring strengthening then in a number of ways. This would be Peter. There was a big difference between the denial of Jesus by Judas and the denial of Jesus by Peter. One last, and we'll close with this. Take Christians at their word. Take Christians at their word, but hold them to their confession. Take Christians at their word, but hold them to their confession. How do we deal with folks in the church that profess Christ on the one hand but display an uncomfortable, a comfortable and ongoing complacency for living God's word? How do we deal with them? What are we to think of them? Maybe we have some in our family. Maybe we have some friends who are this way. 
In other words, their walk seems to be in conflict with their confession. We don't know if they're apostate or if they are faithless. If there is a discrepancy between their confession uh, and their walk, then we need to chase up with them and go from there. We may call people to examine themselves to see if they're in faith. Or we may point out to them, as the writer does here, that the way that they entertain is characteristic of the worst option possible, the way of death, the way of the apostate. It leads to apostate activity, and, and we should avoid it like the plague. We should encourage. We should model and we should pray with them. And as we do, God will bless, and he will because he will be honored by the way we care and shepherd one another in these last days. Well, more to come. Father, we're grateful for your goodness.